Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Rachel Lovenor. Rachel is a award-winning journalist and also the author of the book Poached, Inside the Dark World of Wildlife Trafficking. Um, I'm reading the book right now. It is an incredible read. Rachel speaks with such elegance and authority on a really nuanced, multifaceted, and like hard-to-uncover subject such as international wildlife trade and trafficking. The podcast itself is a bit short. Rachel was on an assignment to finish an article that day, so I was only able to grab it for 30 minutes, but we jumped right into it. We tackled some of the uh, like some of the more pressing questions I had, but we didn't even get to talk about how she infiltrated trafficking circles, how she put herself in danger or in harm's way at least while writing and researching this book, and how she met the last male northern white rhino, Sudan. Um and yeah, just all the stories that she has in this book, it's so well-researched, but also she was, I mean, traveling an extensive amount and kind of going to every single country that she mentions and diving into their unique problems, whether it was pangolins or whether it was with rhino horns or elephant tusks or what have you. There is a significant amount on really a lot of wildlife trafficking, again, for such a dense uh, intense subject. She does a very good job of covering it and very good job of talking about it on the podcast episode as well. So I would highly recommend her book, uh, Poached. It is very well written, in parts funny, uh, in parts really sad. Um, and then throughout the entire book, very, it has a very strong voice and very um, you know informative. And as always, um, if you could like, rate, review, subscribe, share, all those things help so much um, with the success of the podcast. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you. All right. Well, welcome, Rachel. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I first got introduced to you when I heard about your book, Poached. It's an incredible book. I'm going to sing its praises throughout the course of this podcast. But Thank you. <laughs> but one of the hardest things about this book book or about this topic is that there's no real clear answer for our solution to how to stop poaching and how to stop trafficking uh, on a lot of different levels. And sometimes even the scientists, rangers, politicians, officials can't even agree for what to do in a particular scenario. And I'm not blaming them. There's a lot of a lot of variables to consider. Um, can you talk a little bit about how like the legalization of elephant ivory or rhino horns while some scientists believe it will make things less rare, other scientists were concerned that it will normalize it. Like, how does that work? Where do you fall on it? And where do you find the most success? Yeah, it's a really complex question you decided to lead with. Um, <laughs> Sorry. So, no worries. So this debate, it's uh, a lot of people call it, you know, sustainable use, um, which refers to just using products from nature, whether it's live animals or things like ivory or rhino horn um, in a sustainable manner, you know, like, so you're not impacting populations of species or changing ecosystems. 
Um, so there's kind of two camps here. There's people who think that this, uh, this can work, you know, that people should be able to use animals as they want and make money off of them and kind of justify their presence on the landscape that way. And then there's other camps that think that, um, you know, certain species like say elephants or tigers or rhinos, or even all species in the case of um, animal rights advocates should just be off limits for human use. Um, so this, this debate goes back decades and has really just been raging, especially for things like um, elephant ivory, which continues today. Um, in general, Southern African countries like um, Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe, are big proponents of sustainable use of ivory. So their argument is like, these are our elephants. Um, you know, the international community shouldn't be able to tell us what to do with our resources. We should be able to sell ivory and, you know, use those profits as we want, um, preferably for putting back into conservation. Um, then you have other countries like, for example, Kenya that are just completely hands off. Um, you know, they, they say like ivory is worth more, you know, on elephants alive, you know, than it is dead elephants. They've really put their foot down on this issue by having like huge ivory burns, basically mm -hmm. like sending a signal to the world. Like, you know, we'd rather see this stuff destroyed than make money off of this blood ivory. So, yeah, I mean, those, those debates continue where we're at now in terms of ivory is um, it's still banned internationally. Nobody can trade it legally. Um, and most or many places have banned it domestically, including the U.S. and China. But in other places like Japan, it's still legal to trade it domestically. Um, where I stand, I, it really depends on what we're talking about. I'm definitely not against sustainable use. I think, you know, if done well, then then that's great. It's a, it's a way to make sure that we keep wild places around and we justify animals sticking around because you know, let's be honest, we live in a human dominated world and we just have to face reality. Like animals need to be able to compete economically if they're going to stick around or else people are just going to, you know, bulldoze their habitats. Um, uh, and that's especially true in places like Africa where there's just uh, huge pressures for development and poverty and things like that. Um, however, that said, I personally don't think the sort of logistical structures are there to ensure that we can sustainably trade things like ivory and rhino horn, like things with really high value without that legal trade serving as a smoke screen for illegal trade of, you know, laundered poached rhino horns or elephant ivory. Um, you know, there's just like too much corruption. There's too much disorganization um, to ensure that that can be done at this time. Um, and that's not even to, to mention this sort of ethical arguments about, you know, elephants are really smart, they're sentient, like, do we really want to be trading in their materials or should some things be off limits? So, like I said, very complicated question you led with there. Yeah, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of key players, there's a lot of nuance to that. I, I want to touch on that a lot through the course of our talk. But yeah, I mean, sure, it is, sure. it is something that I've seen, uh, I've heard a lot of, and you're right, I mean, it's hard for us. First of all, as Americans to say, uh, you know, hands off your um, exactly, you know, hands off your your material when we've done the exact same thing years ago and continue to do it. Totally, totally. And I mean, that's a big argument that the Southern African states make, like, like, well, we don't want Westerners coming in and telling us what to do with like these colonialist attitudes, like we should be able to do whatever we want and, you know, make money off of our resources to try to catch up in terms of development. Yeah. And it's the same way about Brazil and the Amazon. And I understand that. Oh, absolutely. I, I totally yeah, totally. Get it. 
yeah, like who are we to go in and say, you know, you can and you can't. But I mean, I, I obviously side on the other side, but I, I sympathize with, with those or empathize with those those countries. Right, right, right. Yeah, you can see it argued both ways. I mean, one way that I guess I've heard from people like saying, okay, well, and arguing against this sort of like, okay, well, you guys did it, so we should be able to do it, is like, you know, we are aware now that we are a global community. You know, what happens in Brazil to the Amazon or what happens to African Africa's elephants like affects the whole world yeah. in terms of climate, in terms of ecosystems. Um, and we have a much greater awareness now of just, you know, how much forests are worth, elephants are worth, and um, just a responsibility to preserve those things for future generations rather than just make quick bucks off of them and then, you know, trash the climate in doing so. Um, so... There's one argument. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, so at one point in the book, you're talking about like elephant hybrid quotas, which is a whole thing in and of itself that we can go into at some point. Um, we probably should. But you did. You mentioned that public opinion turned before a lot of these NGOs. Um, so people were against even like the quotas of ivory. So there are people and a lot of them, uh, a critical mass of people who don't want any trade at all. Um, and it seems like in to some effect that that is impacting the point of view of a lot of these NGOs. Um, I think that there's a lot of value behind that. But how do you feel about like the strategies moving forward? Is Is public opinion changing and is changing public opinion the right way to go? Great question. I think, yeah, public opinion is very, very powerful, especially when it comes to NGOs, because, you know, NGOs are typically run on donations from the public or, you know, from companies and individuals. Um, so that can be a good thing or a bad thing. You know, if the public is sort of on the quote unquote right side, you know, on the side of solutions that are supported by science and um, addressing things that actually need to be addressed, then it can be really helpful. On the other hand, if the public, um, I don't know, gets an impression through the media or just like through their own thinking or from like celebrity tweets that something is quote unquote bad and, you know, they, they or, or good and they want to see that happen, but it's not actually supported by science or by the reality in the field, that can be problematic because again, those NGOs are sort of beholden to these donors. So one example that comes to mind from a few years ago is, uh, tech. So I don't know, maybe around like 2015, there were all these stories about how drones were going to stop poaching in Africa. Yeah. And suddenly, yeah, NGOs were getting all these calls like from donors like, hey, you know, I heard about this drone thing. Are you guys getting into that? I'm going to give you this donation and I want it to be used only for drones. Um, when in fact, that technology was just like, it never got off the ground, you know, so to speak. Um, and at the same time, as people are like clamoring for drones and all these like, you know, tech's going to save the day sort of solutions. There's rangers that like don't have socks. Um, but, you know, nobody wants to donate money for socks because it's not a sex topic. So it can definitely be helpful if the public's on the sort of right side of issues, but it can also do the opposite. Yeah, I could see that. I could see the public could be like in some ways capricious about what they want or, or following trends or hot button, like keep, you know, buzzwords or things like that, that could make mm. NGOs life a little bit more difficult yeah actually another thing while we're talking about that topic um like trophy hunting is a really big one you know in fact like public opinion especially in the west is really shifting away from trophy hunting um but 
all these calls to ban trophy hunting, if there's no other solutions in place, are going to do way more damage than good because people are just going to move into those wild areas without the hunter's presence there and, you know, convert them for agriculture. And then you're not going to have any animals. Um, but, you know, you get these celebrity tweets and things about like, oh, you know, look at this horrible trophy hunter. Um, but it's had this chilling effect where a lot of the NGOs actually don't want to issue statements about trophy hunting, even though they recognize privately that it can, it's doing good for conservation and we don't have another solution right now to replace it. Yeah, that's a good point. I can, um, I can vouch for that. The, a lot of NGOs I speak with, cause doing this podcast, I get to talk to a lot of different people and a lot of different nonprofits and, uh, you know, sometimes I have to send the questions beforehand or like kind of vet them or sometimes there mm -hmm. are certain questions that I ask about certain things and, and there's no statement to be had, no statement to be made, which makes sense. I mean, they don't want to kind of step on anyone's exactly. toes with any of that. Yeah, it just it kind of sucks, though, because like yeah. just because people have these like wrong ideas or these like sort of like ethical stances in their head it creates this chilling effect where science doesn't get done. Like the record isn't corrected because nobody's speaking up about it. So, okay. So in addition to making everything more difficult, like obviously we're still <laughs> learning about the science of all this, it's difficult Definitely. for us all to get, you know, public opinion, but then in some ways, even well-intentioned people and well-intentioned uh, movements can wind up mm -hmm. backfiring. Brutal. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, like, I don't want to go to Africa and like shoot a lion myself, but I also recognize that right now that's like a crucial conservation tool that we have in our toolbox and that that toolbox is like very, very, very limited. And, you know, we need all the help we can get. That's such a good point because I, I've, um, I, I know enough to know that I don't know anything, right? And I don't know that I shouldn't <laughs> exactly. really have an opinion on this because I don't know what I'm talking about. That's why I'm trying to have these conversations. But like, nice. it, the yeah, but like trophy hunting is something that I feel like I should have a very staunch opinion on. But right. I've just kind of heard back and forth that like, it does have an asset or there's, there is, like you're saying, it could turn into agriculture, what could completely decimate any wildlife options there entirely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's just, again, so much pressure, especially in Africa, that if you're, if you don't have somebody there, like taking care of the land and keeping poachers off and just like making money off of it in a way that isn't agriculture or like grazing, and then you suddenly remove that person, then immediately people are just going to move in and convert it for some other cause. And that cause is not going to be wildlife. Yeah, and and even that I can't blame them. I mean, these are people that yeah, you know, for sure, they don't exactly. Have socks or they're starving, or they're this or that, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like any of us would do the exact same thing yeah. in their position. Historically, we have. <laughs> uh, yeah, indeed, exactly. So, uh, so kind of talking about like campaigns because I'm always very curious about what works and what doesn't. I've worked with a few NGOs in my in my past. I currently work for one now, but like. The, the the campaigns that seem to work, and I'll talk exclusively about China right now because I know we've got a lot of intel and a lot of the poaching and trafficking seems to swirl around uh, China, or at least Southeast Asia. But it seems like some of the positive messaging isn't really working. What works mm. is like sad emotional messaging and what works is touching on the connection between us and wildlife and also clearing up misinformation, whereas a lot of Chinese might historically think doesn't the word like tusk mean tooth or is very similar to mm -hmm. tooth in, in their language and think teeth can just fall out and grow back. Right. Um, how much of this or how much of the future do you think is with that grassroots messaging and that grassroots stopping the um, consumption of it 
versus like legislation and making things legal or illegal? I really think that we need both approaches, you know, this sort of carrot and a stick approach. We need like this messaging to, you know, help people decide on their own to steer away from wildlife products. But we also need legislation that really has teeth and, you know, punishments that when you do break the law, you actually, you know, have to pay the fine or serve the jail time or whatever it is. Um, you know, some of the messaging, like the the positive stuff, like the mom, I have teeth campaign yeah. in China, you mentioned by IFAW. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it was really nice. It was like letting Chinese know that in fact, elephants have to die for their tusks to come out, which is something like from surveys IFAW conducted, they found out like hardly anybody even knew. And they got a really great response, you know, like, especially from Chinese moms being like, you know, oh my God, I had no idea. Like, yeah, this was like creating orphan baby elephants. Um, yeah, I'm going to give up my ivory bracelets. Um, however, as, as you mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, uh, wildlife trade is just such a hugely complex subject. You know, it's driven by all sorts of demand bases. So it's not just like people who are sympathetic or who would be open to being sympathetic to wildlife that are doing this. Um, other groups like traffic have actually found that um, the, these sort of feel good, connect with nature messages do the opposite, um, you know, or, or they're just completely ignored by certain user groups. So for example, in Vietnam, um, the main group really driving like bona fide rhino horn demand and poaching are wealthier businessmen with a lot of influence and you know they just they don't care about like a rhino's like feelings or whatever like whatever um so through uh um through research traffic and um another group in australia found that these guys will only respond to negative messaging um in the form of like if you have this rhino horn like you're going to get really sick. Um, you're going to have like diarrhea and get a rash all over your body because that's something that actually sometimes happens when people consume rhino horn. Or, you know, if you have this rhino horn, like you're going to look like a big loser in front of your colleagues. Um, you know, like trying to make rhino horn like not cool and also trying to just like make it seem like a liability for your health. Um, and they've also found that it can't just be anybody delivering this message. Um, it has to be like somebody that these guys really respect, which means an international businessman, um, emphasis on man, it needs to come from a man, Mm. and not someone Chinese, because the Vietnamese have this thing with China. So somebody like Richard Branson, or Barack Obama, or, you know, some like, big guy in Vietnam. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, I was just gonna say, it's just, it's so complicated. So I think the the lesson there is that you can't just like run in and assume like whatever is going to work for one group of people will work for another. And you really need to like do your research and surveys and figure out like, okay, who am I targeting and like, what's going to work for them? And like, yeah. Yeah. And uh, in the book you even mentioned, I mean, Yao Ming about how Yao Ming Mm -hmm. actually worked significantly in China. Um, Exactly. But it was still, it was not like really positive sunshine messaging. It was, you know, kind of what, like talking about the detriments and what are you doing, whether it was for physical health or to the environment? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's been great in China. Yeah. Um, at the same time though, like that campaign by wild aid with Yao Ming, it hasn't like ended shark fin trade, for example, or pangolin scale trade. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's really hard to measure how effective these campaigns are just because, you know, human behavior is so complex. It's not like people are living in a vacuum and these are like the only things they're exposed to. Yeah. So you wrote this book, 
um, a couple years ago, but I mean, yeah. I know you're you're constantly following up on it. You're constantly writing articles, um, and we've obviously have heard a lot about the wildlife trade in the past year. Um, for sure, I know a lot of these things are um, you know set in the culture for centuries. But how have you seen any changes in uh, trends of consumption or demand in either? Uh, China, Vietnam, or any other countries since the pandemic or since you've written the book? Yeah. Um, well, I'll go with the pandemic one just because that's a little more recent. Um, you know, there's been a lot of great talk about the need to like really reevaluate our relationship with nature um, and with wildlife trade. But to be honest, I, I haven't been that impressed with what's actually happened over the past year. And, you know, I did a story about this for the New York Times about this time last year. And one of my sources said like, yeah, you know, like this stuff happens. And like, at first everybody's talking about the cause, you know, wildlife trade. And then qu very quickly, it all just moves on to like the human impact that side of things. And people just like forget to ever address the underlying cause, which is kind of, I'm afraid where we're headed now. You know, like China did a few things like they banned consumption of most wild animals, which is, you know, that's cool, but they still have uh, wildlife used in traditional Chinese medicine, including pangolin scales. Um, they still have wildlife being slaughtered for fur. So, you know, that's great that they don't want the meat around anymore, but you know, the wildlife is still around. So it's still presenting that threat. Um, the U.S. hasn't really come out yet with anything, although there's talk of it. Um, I think Cory Booker actually was mm -hmm. leading some of that, which is pretty cool. Um, and there's there's also talk of like reforming how we do wildlife trade at the international level. But you know, this stuff just moves so slowly. We'll see what comes of it. And I'm I'm also just afraid that once things kind of go back to some semblance of normalcy, we're gonna sort of forget about it and lose the urgency. Yeah, you already kind of hear that now. At least definitely. Right yeah, yeah, for sure. Way less concerned. So like throughout the throughout my experience, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. Mm -hmm. When I've heard a lot about like wildlife trafficking, um, wildlife trade and, and poaching and, and, you know, loss of biodiversity, a lot of it does stem from China. Right. There's a lot of concerns about shark fin soup, mm -hmm. uh, pangolin scales, like we're mentioning, um, uh, elephant tusk, rhino horns. Which is something like, you know, I, uh, I feel like I need to mention, but also when reading your book, a lot of the demand and a lot of the exports are US based, a surprising mm -hmm. amount, especially mm -hmm. in like certain like herpetology, you said there are like certain uh, like verticals within this. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about both of those kind of assumptions? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean... The unfortunate reality is that like the largest drivers of demand right now for animals and their parts is in Asia, especially China and Vietnam. Um, and, you know, that's for a lot of reasons. It's just culturally they've um, used wildlife for things like medicine and meat. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that we can just like point fingers at Asia and be like, this is your fault. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, like wildlife is... Uh, traded legally and illegally, you know, in every country in the world, pretty much, um, you know, from the Middle East to Europe to to here in North America. Um, and yeah, there's estimates out there that say that the U.S. is like the second largest illegal market for wildlife behind China. And okay, that's for a number of reasons. Uh, there are a lot of Asian Americans here. 
there's also a, a huge demand for exotic pets. So, yeah. you know, reptiles, um, small mammals, things like that. Uh, so, you know, this is also a problem that we need to look to cleaning up in our own backyards. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of conservation is that like cleaning mm -hmm. up in our own backyards as much as we can. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so you have a chapter adding to the complexity, right? You have a chapter that's just <laughs> called the CITES circus. Can you talk about oh, man. CITES and like what, <laughs> like what they did, some decisions they've done inadvertently and sometimes just yeah. like turning a blind eye that actually hurt animals and hurt what they're trying to, you know, the initiative they're trying to move forward. So I think the thing to know about CITES and just to like understand about them is that they're not a conservation treaty. They are a trade treaty. So like they're not out to like protect animals first and foremost. They're out to make sure that trade is sustainable. So um, like I think a lot of the criticism with CITES like stems from just sort of basic misunderstanding about what they're trying to do. Mm. You know, it's not it's not like a bunch of scientists in a room. It's also like people from the industry, like ivory traders or, you know, reptile traders or whatever. And, um, you know, government officials are the ones making decisions at CITES. They're the ones like voting on things. And they're, yeah, they're hearing from scientists, but they're also getting pressure from uh, trade groups. So, you know, I've heard about like Japan, for example, like taking everybody out to a fancy dinner, like the night before, like a, a vote that they care about, like tuna or whales yeah. or something, you know? So, you know, there's definitely a lot of talk about like vote swapping, like, oh, hey, Malaysia, I'll like vote on this for you if you will vote on that for me. Um, and, you know votes kind of like being bribed through fancy dinners and events and promises and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's a human organization, so it's definitely fallible and not perfect. But as, as one source told me, you know, for now it's the best we've got, but it would again be really nice to see uh, things change coming out of this pandemic because CITES definitely does not protect against um, the, the risk of zoonotic disease transmission. You know, that's also not its mission, but perhaps it can be kind of wrapped up in there in some kind of like major reform, or maybe we just need like a new treaty to try to protect animals and people's health. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> Probably do. Yeah. I've not heard glowing reviews about CITES from or read yeah. or, you know, anything I've experienced. So, mm -hmm. um, so when when you're researching all this, um, you've traveled to like 72 countries. It's probably even more than that now, but I saw that on your site. You've lived in six, um, and you've obviously like researched and delved into much more. What countries are getting it right in terms of wildlife conservation and uh, you know wild animal trade, and what countries are still struggling? You kind of touched upon this a bit earlier. Oh man, um, that's like a huge question, and hmm. I mean, okay, struggling, I would say like Laos is really bad. Um, mm -hmm. I hate to point fingers, but sorry, Laos, like be better, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Indonesia is kind of a shit yeah. show for wildlife trade, um, especially for reptile issues and bird, songbird issues. Um, you know, then there's, there's doing it well. Hmm. <sighs> I don't like I appreciate the silence. The, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think. Like, nobody's perfect. Like, I appreciate the U.S.'s efforts, but we should definitely be doing more. Mm -hmm. um, like, Botswana's got, like, this amazing population of elephants, um, but there's reports in the pandemic that poaching has been going up. Um, Namibia's great. 
Namibia generally is doing well. Um, huh. You know, no place is perfect, but Namibia's um, private conservancies run by people like on hunting and sustainable tourism and ecotourism and stuff are great. Um, I don't know. That's just, that's a huge question. Yeah. No worries. Yeah, totally. Well, and I know you're on deadline for an article, so I just got one more question. What is your outlook? Are you hopeful? Mm-hmm. Are you like, are you frustrated? Yeah. Like, how do you feel right now, given everything eh, you know? Man. <laughs> um, so I was told when I wrote Poach that I had to make it hopeful. But, you know, that's that's not just something I kind of like phoned in. I do think that there are like amazing examples out there that show how much we can accomplish if we just like care to do it. You know, a lot of these things are run by individuals and like small like conservation groups rather than, uh, you know, governments. I, I just, I think, yeah, we need a lot more commitment on the national and international level instead of leaving it up to like, yeah, people who are just devoting their life to fighting this issue. Um, that said, there's so much more attention being given to wildlife trade these days. And, you know, people are thinking about it, especially with the pandemic. So that I think is cause for hope. Um, you know, I'm just kind of like, if we can't get it done now, like, when are we ever going to get this done? So yeah. ask me in a year or two. Okay. All right. Well, we'll yeah. make sure to do this again uh, before that, hopefully. But yeah, Rachel, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to uh, reading your article you finished today. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate this. You're a wealth of knowledge and your book is incredible. I can't really oh, speak you. about it highly enough. Like you're, you're equal parts funny, uh, cutting, uh, super incisive and insightful. So uh, I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, yeah, thank you again for having me. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog, don'tforgetyourboots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time, take care. <laughs>